Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntris here, and I've got two episodes for you today. So if this is uh, what you were listening to and you're not aware, uh, beyond uh, today's guest, or the guest you're about to hear, Rod Rice uh, has a wonderful interview available as well. And we talk about uh, his work as a colorist and also his graduation to being uh, a full artist and uh, doing wonderful painting work on uh, books for Marvel. And, of course, his wonderful image work with uh, Kyle Higgins on projects like Hardin's Wall and Cowl. Uh, It's a wonderful conversation, and I uh, suggest you pop that into your uh, queue as well, along with today's episode with Art T-Bear. This is a long time coming. Art has been very kind and uh, told me how much he's enjoyed Word Balloon over the years and has uh, been very, you know, kind of gave me a wonderful page that he inked of uh, Doom Patrol, beautiful splash page, Um, you know, just just really, really kind. And I'm really happy to help him with his Kickstarter campaign for his uh, art book. Uh, Oodles of Doodles, uh, the art of uh, Art T-Bear. And I, and I really like uh, Art's work over the years. Art is uh, an anchor and an artist, a uh, penciler as well, that's uh, done incredible work and worked with uh, people like Dan Jurgens on Adventures of Superman and Legion of Superheroes with Mark Wade and Barry Kitson. Of course, his incredible Marvel work through the 90s. And, you know, again, my 90s blind spot, not just with the X-Men, but Art was one of those uh, guys that left Marvel and went to work for Image and Extreme. And we talk a bit about uh, the Marvel exodus and uh, the creation of Image and uh, the boom and the high times and the low times of uh, the 90s and the speculative market and when things collapsed. And Art was uh, a part of that and even illustrates it in his own uh, miniseries and attempted an ongoing series with uh, Black and White and talks about... uh, you know, again, the good times and the bad times. But uh, he's a smart guy and uh, was able to weather the storm and come back to Marvel and DC and continue to do great work. He just wrapped up a wonderful uh, run on Action Comics and has now transferred to Superwoman, The Adventures of Lana Lang with Superpowers, Kay Perkins' uh, book. And uh, it's uh, really neat to hear Art's perspective. Plus, we just, you know, kind of get into a general conversation about a lot of characters and the way Marvel and DC presents characters, certainly uh, the movies and the television shows as well. Um, it's it's a nice casual conversation with Art T-Bear, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, it was fun doing it, and uh, I think Art's going to be one of those guys that we're going to get back on because uh, being around for as long as he has... Art has, I think, really great perspective on where the comic market is. Um, he uh, relieves my uh, fears that the days of inkers might be uh, coming to an end. I, I just really got that sense from talking to a few that were maybe nervous about where things were going. And Art's very confident that inking needs to stay in comic books. It's a very important part of the comic book language. And uh, he makes a good case for it. But it's a pleasure to talk today with Art T. Bear. On Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, as always, League, for your wonderful support in keeping Word Balloon going via Patreon. Uh, Word Balloon is free. It'll always be free. But if you want to help the cause, um, patreon.com slash wordballoon or wordballoon.com uh, has an ad for Patreon right there. If you click on it, it will take you to my Patreon page and tell you how you can help and subscribe. Do you think Word Balloon is worth you know the price of a comic book each month? If you do and you can spare it, 
I really would appreciate the support. Thank you, as always, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. There are great collections this week at InStock Trades. I talked about some of these on uh, the uh, episode as well with Rod Rice. Uh, I got to re-present Punisher by uh, Back to War, the hardcover omnibus. This covers the early years of the Punisher and all the formative years, including the incredible Stephen uh, Grant, Mike Zeck, John Beatty, Circle of Blood. When this thing came out in 1986, it was so popular and literally flew off the shelves to the point where I was like, okay, it's Wednesday. It's the first day. I'm sure I can get an issue. It was completely sold out. The the run completely sold out. And, and direct market retailers could only give it to the smart subscribers that had already pre-ordered it. So that was my first uh, like encounter with, what do you mean, like, I can't buy the book? It's brand new. It's out today. And they're like, yeah, I'm sorry. All of our all of our issues are spoken for. And I went to three or four different stores and had the same results. So pretty amazing. But uh, this also collects a lot of amazing Spider-Man, giant-sized Spider-Man, uh, the wonderful black-and-white magazine Marvel Super Action from 1976, which featured The Punisher. Really great stories. Some Daredevil stuff in there as well. Uh, it is 696 pages, 50% off. It's just $50 from in-stock trades. There's another omnibus of The Punisher, and that is uh, the incredible run of uh, Garth Ennis, Steve Dillon, Tim Bradstreet, so many more on uh, the Marvel Knights uh, Punisher series. And this collects, let's see here, Punisher 1 through 12 from 2000, which was the pre-Marvel Knights, I believe, run. Then Punisher 1 through 7 and 13 through 37, Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe, and uh, more from Marvel uh, Knights uh, Double Shot number 1. So great Garth Ennis stuff. It's got a beautiful Tim Bradstreet cover. It's uh, 50% off. It's also $50 in in in-stock trades. You can get Batman Year One from uh, Frank Miller and Dave Mazzuchelli, the great team that uh, first kicked ass for so long on Daredevil. They got together, and uh, after Dark Knight Returns, Frank went to the regular Batman comic uh, from 404 through 407 and uh, represented uh, Batman's earliest years in this incredible story with beautiful David Mazzucchelli art. Um, is, uh, is Richmond Lewis the colorist or the anchor? I'm, I'm hoping, you know, because you got to acknowledge the beautiful colors that uh, were used in this uh, amazing book. It also includes reproductions of original layouts, promotional art, unseen Mazzuchelli Batman art. It is Richmond Lewis is the color uh, guy. And that makes a lot of sense because this really was the full package and so impressive. They did a great animated adaptation of Batman Year One, but if you haven't read it, it really is a classic. And it's no surprise that DC keeps putting it back out in print. 144 pages it's uh, 42% off, just $20.29 from InStockTrades.com. Check it out for yourself. Great deals at great prices. We'll find some RT Bear uh, books uh, to talk about in the close. But uh, do yourself a favor and find some great books at great prices at InStockTrades.com. All right, without further ado, let's pick up our conversation with RT Bear. Um, you know, I don't like to leave uh, conversation in the locker room, as I always give the sports metaphor. You know, uh, I'm very pleased that some creators feel so relaxed that they almost start telling great stories before we're officially rolling. And luckily, I had uh, my recording already rolling, and uh, we start things off before my full introduction to RT Bear. 
he gives us a great story about Mark Wade and uh, an assignment when Mark was an editor uh, way back and early in uh, in Art's career. Uh, and Art gets the opportunity to ink one of the comic book legends of all time. And it's interesting to hear his young man perspective when he gets this opportunity. So in mid-conversation, let's drop in to my talk with Art T-Bear, now on Word Balloon. How long is your show? Do you just kind of end it after the interview? Whenever. Like a- yeah, it's as long as it needs to be. And I mean, you know, when I have, I always give the example, not that I've had him on, but I'm like, if you have a chance to interview George Lucas and he says, take all the time you want, why would you stop at 40 minutes? You know, oh, I mean, yeah. and I mean, that's you the thing. Did George Lucas? No, I said like, oh. I, yeah, obviously I didn't, but no, you know, like if that opportunity <laughs> comes up and they don't give you a time frame, I mean, God, you know, Wade, it's so funny, uh, Marty Pasco. Sometimes, you know, and again, he'll just get in a groove and start talking. And he's like, you got to be kidding. We just talked for four hours. And I'm like, yeah, man. And they go, it's fine. It's all good. I go, I'll chop it up into like two episodes. And so Wade always, Mark Wade always makes fun of me. And he's like, yeah, unlike Marty Pasco, John, I actually have other things to do. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. No, 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 no. He says, no, he's totally laughing when he says it. No, I love, no, Wade and I are great. No, he's fantastic. And I always blow him shit where I'm like, all right. I know I'm on the clock, so let's get started. And I say that on the actual episode, or I always say, like, I feel like I'm a cab driver, and eventually the meter's going to just, like, the flag's going to pop up, and I know our ride's over, and you got to go. So, and he always teases back. Yeah, yeah. Mark's a great guy. Absolutely. Actually, Legion of Superhero, when I was doing Adventures of Superman, and he asked me to do a Green Lantern story. And I was like, sure, yeah, I love Green Lantern. He goes, uh, Steve Ditko is going to be the penciler. And wow. I was like, um, I, I knew who Steve Ditko is, but but I was like young and just like, you know, like full of myself. And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, Steve Ditko, whatever. And so then he goes, he just goes, he leans over and he says, you have to bury him now. <laughs> you have to bury him now? I'm like, I'm like, what? Yeah, he goes, you really have to bring because you know like it's that whole finisher thing that we were talking about yesterday yes, yes. Um, so, so you're like yeah be very heavy handed he said do whatever you have to to make this stuff look great I understand and so I was like yeah I was like oh my gosh I got like full on like uh, you know a seal of approval to kind of bury Steve Disco and I look back and it's still it's really it's still really good but I think I would be way more intimidated to do it now you know what I mean? If somebody sure. said that, I, I would know. I would just be really, really like, should I go that deep into it? Should I be a little bit more like traditional with it? You know what I mean? Well, does and, it? And did the, it look like? Did it look like Ditko art, or did it not look like Ditko art? It it, it looked like Ditko layouts. You know what I mean? So the, sure. the Ditko isms were still there, like the poses and all that was still there, but it was like really rendered because I was I was. Sure. to more of a realistic phase, I think, at the time. So there's, there's kind of this, like, pseudo-Neil Adams, Dick Giordano look over it. I understand. So it, it's pretty interesting, but it's not Steve Ditko. No, I understand. And, uh, you know, that uh, I know other art jobs that ended up like that. Um, and then, conversely, um, God, I'm, now I'm shaming me. Alex Saviak was brought in to finish... Uh, a Will Eisner piece where it was the spirit met the escapist, that character that, um, oh God, Michael Chabon created for the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay. 
and Dark Horse was doing okay. comic book stories, you know, based... Do you remember that book? No, I don't. Oh, it's a fantastic novel. It's, it's a, a fiction novel about two comic book creators, and it's set in the 30s, and, you know, it kind of does... Like, one of them is, like, right off the boat, cousin to the other one, and it's kind of like if Stan Lee had, like, a, a Russian cousin that came, you know, to America in the 30s and was an artist, and they together created a superhero. And, you know, created this whole fictitious comic book company and all these other characters that they created. And, uh, they're, they're, yeah, their main, their main hero was called the Escapist. And he was kind of a masked escape artist kind of character and everything. And so they had a... For, you know, I mean, Eisner loved the book... And uh, they decided to do a, an escapist meets the spirit uh, collaboration of like a five page story, and um, Eisner had given Savick uh, very loose, very very loose pencils. He showed them to me, and I, you know, Savick really made a you know a serious effort to make it look as Eisnery as possible, and was very quiet about it because it came out right after Will passed away, and everyone's like, oh, isn't that great? Will still has it like right up to the end. And he did, I think. Well, and I, I don't know, maybe because some of his other more personal graphic novels that he was still putting out still looked very much like Eisner. But maybe he had maybe he had a ghost inker that was finishing stuff. But yeah, I mean, yeah. it was it was the barest of pencil layouts that uh, Savick had to work from. Even, yeah, even when those guys are looser or they're they're like phoning it in, they're still like those. There's still this competency in the storytelling, the layout, and all that. And that's still always going to be there. You know, sure. you know what I mean. No matter how loose the you know the the drawing is, and um, so I, I do think, like in the case of Ditko, all that you know those isms were there, and the posts were still there. You know, because there's there's definitely like it's kind of pseudo Kirby where the hands are kind of coming forward and sure. not as flat as Kirby, but they're kind of still flat. There's, there's still some of the isms, so. Um, I understand I what you mean. Half of those pages, yeah. I would like. I would like to look back on those and see if they're, uh, you know, how interesting they are with like this, this kind of Neil Adams realism over, you know, Steve Ditko's, you know, more, I guess, cartoony or simplistic um, pencils. Yeah, I know what you mean. No, exactly. Are, now, can we have that story on the record or no? Oh, if you recorded it, yeah. If you all right, then it's weave it into the. Yeah. Well, then guess what? That's our introduction. Our T bear. Welcome to Word Balloon. And you started off with an amazing anecdote, and I appreciate that. Well, thank you. It's good to be on your show. Big well, time fan. And, and uh, you know, we're going to try really hard not to lapse into, well, in our first conversation, dot, dot, dot. But we tried to record something yesterday, and Skype continues to be my enemy. I've kind of made that known on the uh, podcast a few times, and I, I explained it to Art. So, uh, And, in fact, I will even cop to the fact that when Art said he had to be on the f uh, phone... I'm like, you know, this would be a lot better if it was on Skype. And I kind of was like, you know, direct about it. Not intending to be shitty, but just like, yeah, hey, you know, for future reference. And, of course, Skype screws up. So here we are with Art still on the phone, but much clearer than you would have got from our first conversation. So all that said, I appreciate you coming back and, uh, you know, taking my shit the first time. <laughs> the plug is mine, and... Yeah, I was surprised you just said all that. I thought we were just going to ignore that. And that, was, you know, that we're perfect and we never make any mistakes. And 
no, no. technology is our friend. Yeah. No, no. Full disclosure uh, to the uh, Word Balloon uh, League of Word Balloon listeners. It's quite all right. Transparency. Yeah, it's rare in today's world, but uh, yeah, I kind of believe. Yeah. That. Well, anyway, right you... now I'm disappearing. No, no, because now uh, we're going to talk first about your Kickstarter campaign. Uh, yes. It's uh, Oodles of Doodles and other stuff. The Art of Art T-Bear. Yes, Volume One, and uh, we're currently at uh, eighteen three eight two, and we've exceeded our goal, and we're we're honing in or closing in on our first stretch goal, which is nineteen K. And uh, um, do you want me to explain the book? I can explain uh, sure. what the book is. Okay, uh, the book is a fifty-two page um, art book. Um, based on drawings and doodles and things that I've done for the last 30 years. They're all collected in, in one, uh, like I said, 52-page book. And it's uh, eight and a half by 12 size, so it's a little bit bigger, you know, than the like normal comic book size. Sure. So the artwork is a little more impressive, and, and uh, it's full color. And, um, yeah, it just spans uh, the 30 years, so there's uh, stuff from... My X-Men run, Cable run, uh, some of the Flash covers I've done, and uh, commissions, uh, con doodles, uh, their sketches, layouts, you know, all kinds of stuff. Excellent. And also, you're very close to, as you say, your first stretch goal, which is 19,000, and uh, you're within a couple hundred of, of that goal. And if you reach that, yeah. you're, you're going to add more pages, right? Yeah, so it'll be a 60-page uh, book. Cool. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's only $25, and uh, you get 60 pages. So, you know, trying to keep the bargain in there, trying to Atta boy. make it worth people's wild, yeah. And, of course, too, you've got some uh, uh, pledge tiers that I that I know you wanted to mention. So so tell us about some of the pledge tiers. Oh, yes, thank you, thank you. Um, the ones I missed last night. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, oh, well, there's all, all the tiers for the, the basic book and, uh, and stuff, so there's, um, there's a sketch tier, but it's sold out, but we're, uh, we, uh, we're reissuing it in a, in a higher tier, in tier 11, and so we have, uh, custom exclusive prints, there's four of them, just for the Kickstarter campaign, um, I brought out of, um, out of the storage locker, my old 1990s uh, and white image create your own book that I like right now. so the three issue mini series are uh, are back out for uh, for purchase I um, I uh, the white character from black and white for a uh, extreme studios 25th anniversary so um, I was so happy with the way it came out it ended up becoming the cover for Oodles and a uh, limited um, print, a full-size print that's also in that tier eight, which is the black and white tier. And then, of course, my quantum mechanics books are in a tier. And then uh, the thing I'm really excited about is that I have an eager tier, uh, which is um, it's blue lines that I penciled. And so you get a page of blue lines, you get to choose one of four, and um, it comes with all the tools you need, which is a nib, a brush, uh, pelican ink, and it comes with an art lesson. So there's a basic art lesson that um, I have videotaped of me inking some of the commissions, and so that will be included as well. So if you're an aspiring inker, 
um, and you want to kind of you know work under true professional you know conditions this is the way to do it and it has a basic inking you know video that will come with it that's great um, the, oh yeah I, I think it's awesome yeah getting a lot of support from my fellow inkers too so like Mick Gray is being really cool about it Jaime Mendoza and a couple others have uh, posted and reposted and they're all angry oh oh uh, Kevin Conrad they're angry they're like why didn't I think of that <laughs> <laughs> that's great Yes. With this paper, yeah, they won't have that kind of problem. And then as a joke, I say, just in case, there's a, there's a whiteout pen that comes with it as, as well in case you make any mistakes. And you also say you have a tier with a, for a portfolio review as well. Yeah, yeah, that's also, um, I just sit here, I can only reach so many people at conventions, and I always get a bunch of them, you know, like people asking, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And so this way, I can reach a bigger audience, you know, even an international audience with Kickstarter and make the portfolio reviews, you know, readily available that way, um, just as a way to, you know, possibly, you know, do a portfolio review for somebody who might not have access to me or, sure. you know, even a convention, yeah. That's excellent, man. No, that's really cool. Um, and incredibly valuable, not only for an aspiring anchor, but obviously a self-starter that maybe, you know, wants to do penciling and inking themselves and stuff. So, no, I think that's terrific. Thank you. Yeah, I just <laughs> remember there were a lot of people that helped me early on and, um, and gave me some, some tips. Uh, one of the, the main people was, uh, in the day, was Walter Simonson and Carl Potts over at Marvel. Tell me about and that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I still remember the nice words and... And Walter even went over, like, he made Xeroxes of the pages and went over with a red pen. He says he doesn't remember this, but he did do this. Cool. And I still have those Xeroxes somewhere. Yeah, he really helped me out. So I think I'm going to do it similarly where they'll send their portfolio in, and then I can I can put those up in Photoshop, and then I can kind of, like, show them, like, little, like, circles, like red circles or arrows or whatever, and then, like, this is where you might want to try this or, you know, um, not do this. You know, just that kind of instructional stuff, um, tell, what they did for me. Tell me about Carl Potts. What did he do for you? He did similar, um, but it was more like over the phone. Okay. It wasn't like this Xeroxes. Yeah, so he was, he and Ralph Macchio were really cool in the early days because 
I had turned in an ink job, and they said, it's pretty good, but we're going to give you another shot at making it better. And the reason is we can get you a better page rate. And this was when Marvel was, like, you know, really, really cool. And, <laughs> and like geekers. And like geekers. Sorry, man. I'm sorry. I was coughing. I apologize. And I actually cut off the microphone for a second. So, uh, and it's okay because you did the you did the first snide in like Gingers, and I got that. The second one was while I was coughing. But anyway, I've, I'm I'm done coughing. That so continue. Horrific, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, you continue now. Take some vitamin C. Try to kick that thing. Yes, sir. You continue now. Yeah, you were saying that when Marvel liked Gingers, but go on. Yeah, when Marvel liked Gingers. Yeah, so. Carl and and Walter and even Ralph were suggesting it. Um, it was pretty amazing, and I did. I went over all the stuff. I brought it up to you know a better standard and got a better page rate out of it. So that's excellent, thanks, guys. Yeah, man. Yeah. No, you know, and and it doesn't surprise me to hear that about any of those men, and especially Walt, because uh, you know our, our our mutual friend Brian Bendis has gone on uh, a lot and talked about how gracious Walter is to everybody, fans and creators alike. And Brian always says he's kind of his role model in terms of how to talk to aspiring creators and how to talk to fans. And in fact, there was a Baltimore Comic-Con in 2009 when I was hanging with Brian at his table and Walter came up and I think he was doing pages for Marv Wolfman's uh, Vigilante reboot that they did in the around 2009 or so. Oh, he did all the covers. Yeah, those things were awesome. Yeah, yeah. And he was just showing us a bunch of pages. And I think they were interiors because he was saying that I want to say John Paul Leon might have inked over him or something like that. I'm not sure. But it was so cool. And and again, he was yeah. like, he was so, you know, almost like shy about it. You know, well, you know, I did this or I did that. And we're all like, Walter. I think it was Rick Lee. Was it Rick Lee Nardi? It might have been for. but. It it was yeah I think so again two thousand nine and I might be get I might be mixing up two different projects but I was pretty certain that it was actually John Paul Leon uh, and then that's why well and again exactly that's why like two such great artists and and coming together and like you were saying about Ditko sometimes when there's a collaboration you you, you know it, it becomes a different thing and and you know in, the, in this case it just was really interesting and he was just so impressed with with Leon's uh work and everything as we all are and it was just such a great moment and you know he leaves and Ben is like wasn't that awesome can you believe he did that and he goes and he wants to like he's so excited about this stuff or no you know something it was for his Judas coin book that's what it was oh, okay yeah, yeah yes Walter did temple that yeah so yes it was that it was that book and now that I think of it and yeah, he was so excited. Well, I'm doing this, and I'm going to bring this in, you know. And he was just kind of just being matter of fact about it. And you know, Brian and I are like, "Oh my god, I can't believe we're seeing this. This is fantastic." So uh, yeah. yeah, Brian's a huge fan of all, of all like past, present, and future comics. Yeah, he gets it. He gets. You know, it's funny. Yeah. I, I was I was on a podcast today, and and I don't mean this as a knock. And I and really, any League of Word Balloon listener, as I like to call my listeners. Uh, knows that I'm not talking about them because they're here because they really appreciate comic book history. But I wonder sometimes if this new audience that is coming in for Saga and some of the image books, um, I, I, I wonder how much they care 
about comic book history. And that's not a judgment in any way other than to say, unlike people like us, and Art and I are close enough in the same age, where we were exposed... I'm going to clear my throat. We were exposed to Golden Age and and Silver Age reprint stuff in the 70s. Oh, yeah. So we really did love those original Superman stories or Adam Strange from the 50s and 60s. And, and you know, we really appreciated that stuff because it was coming out in 100-page spectaculars or 80-page giants or whatever, and, it, you know, alongside the new stuff. So it was still new to us, and it was like, oh, cool, look at that. Isn't that interesting? At least, you know, and I'm assuming you had the same reaction. Yeah, because wasn't it like DC would print like a new... A new story, and then they would, like in the 80-page specials or whatever, and then they would be, like, older stories, and sometimes they would relate to the main story, um, and they would publish those, right? Yeah. That's what you're talking about, Exactly, right? yeah. Yeah, the hun- those things were awesome. Yeah, exactly. No, you know, it'd be Brave and Bold, and it would be Batman and Adam Strange, and then in the back, you know, they'd have, like you said, like a 17-page lead story, and then they'd have a backup where it'd be a Mystery in Space reprint from the 60s or the 50s or whatever. So, yeah. yeah, you know, or my favorites were you'd get a new Justice League story up front and you'd get uh, a Golden Age Justice Society story as a backup. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah or or the, like some of the crossover stuff for the Justice League. Oh, yeah. With the, yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, Gardner, Gardner Fox yeah, stuff. I, yeah, man. No, exactly. I still remember what was the one. Um, it probably wasn't a reprint. It was probably uh, it was the Justice League Justice Society where what was the Spectre of Earth 2? <laughs> it sounds ridiculous now by today's standards, but there were two, the two Earths were colliding or something. Yes. They were in the same orbit. And yeah. then the Spectre kind of became like a wedge between the two planets. Yes. And it stopped them from colliding, but he actually, like, you know, uh, ended himself in the process. So I just remember as a kid, like, oh my God, I had no idea the Spectre could do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree, man. Very cool. Yeah, all of a sudden he became a cosmic character somehow, you know? Yeah, no, and you're right. And and literally, like, yeah, pushing planets around in a way that Superman couldn't because he was so gigantic and it was, you know, the size of a beach ball. You know, Earth was, like, the size, size of a beach ball or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you remember the visual, yeah. Like, like the Spectre was huge. He was, like, bigger than the planets themselves. Yep, yep. Yeah. No, that's good stuff, man. No, I love yeah. it. Or, or my favorite, my first introduction, I think, to Golden Age characters was that Dr. Fate Our Man showcase story that, again, wound up in, like, a 100-page spectacular of Brave and Bold. And then at the end of yeah, this... I and it's, the original, Oh, that's fantastic. For the listeners... Yeah, for the listeners, they face off against Solomon Grundy, and it isn't until the very end of the story that Green Lantern shows up, but it's Alan Scott Green Lantern, obviously. But, you know, right. some, again, I'm like, who's this blonde... Red, you know, red blouse wearing Green Lantern with the purple cape. Why isn't he wearing the the, the standard Hal Jordan uniform that the rest of the Green Lantern Corps? Exactly. Like this is not Hal Jordan. Exactly. Yeah. No, it was great. And and again, I mean, God, you know, Doctor Fate's costume with that, you know, knight kind of helmet that he wears, the helmet of Naboo, of course. Uh, and our man too. Our, you know, it's so funny. Um, Don, um, oh God, and now I'm blanking shame on me. I love this guy. And he's a Chicago guy too. Uh, JSA artist of the 2000s with Jeff Johns. Uh, damn it, I apologize, Don, and I can't remember his name. But they, they kind of redesigned Our Man's uniform for his son. 
and it was different from the yellow and black uh, classic Hour Man, uh, you know, costume. And uh, you know, right. and, he, and he's like, "Hey, what do you think?" And I'm like, "Dude, I love your art, but I got to tell you, I love that classic look. I would have been happy." Like if he had done like what Wally did in, at the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths and just taken Barry's uniform, and it's like, all right, now I'm yeah. the Flash. Because uh, yeah, I mean, I just that Golden Age Hour Man outfit is is just incredible. I always thought it was good. Yeah, I, I think some of those original designs still still hold up. Yep, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and and especially because of the simplicity of a lot of the Golden Age stories, it really was the visual that really kind of carried the special. I think the specialness of, of a lot of those characters and stories. It really was the look. Jay Garrick's Mercury-inspired Flash outfit, I still love it. And when John Wesley Shipp was wearing it on the TV show, I, I had goosebumps. You geeked out. I totally. Because, again, those guys... Awesome. Yeah, man. No, I, I am. I, I am a huge Justice Society fan. I'm so glad I got to meet Erwin. Uh, uh, is it Hassan or Hasten? I always say it wrong. You know what I'm talking about? Irwin Hassan or Irwin Hassan? Um, I, I don't know who that is. Oh, he, well, you know, from for comic strips, he created the character Dondi, which is awesome. Dondi with a D. And, uh, okay. and also, but in, in comics, he worked for National in the, in the 40s. He, he co-created Wildcat and did a lot of... Uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about now, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I got to meet him and, oh, you know, God, his JSA work was incredible. Along with, was it Harry Crane who did, um, and I could be getting the name wrong, the Golden Age Flash stuff, but all those guys. I mean, you know, Shelley Moldoff, I believe, was one of the Alan Scott Green Lantern artists and stuff before he was in yeah, the Batman office. So, yeah, no, I love those guys. I, I love all that stuff. Just just great, great, beautiful art. You know, I had an idea. Did you ever, it, it's, it's kind of a kid movie, but that, that movie School of Rock? Sure. And I think they got the idea. There was a documentary. It was like uh, it was this heavy metal uh, enthusiast traced like like did a family tree on like how heavy metal like the evolution of it and how it it you know like the different stages. And he did it kind of like a family tree where there would be like the punk branch that spun off into this and gave birth to this kind of metal and so on and so on. Sure. They, they did that idea in School of Rock where he kind of, you know, when he's teaching the kids, he's showing, like, here's the tree and this is where everything came from. Yep. You know, this came out of this movement, this came out of that movement. And I, I always thought, like, after I saw that, somebody's got to do that with comics. Like, really create a documentary uh, that gets in depth like that, like over, like, many, you know, like five or six different documentaries and really gets into the nuances because to me I get fascinated with simple stuff like who was the first character that didn't have eyeballs you know because as a kid I thought that was the coolest thing because Batman doesn't have eyes right right white. yeah and then I was like I think the Phantom I think you're right Batman definitely and then I was like yeah so I was like is the Phantom the first like and then I started thinking like who was the who was the template for what came before and so on and so on and how each one kind of built off the other. Because like we were talking about yesterday, yesterday about legacy and comic artists and, and sure. you know, how they kind of are inspired by other and how the movement, you know, it just shifts and changes um, over the over the decades. And um, 
I didn't think it would be fascinating. I don't know how many other people would think it was fascinating, but I sure as hell would because I think it would be cool to see all that stuff. Well, well I go on. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say. Oh, I was no, gonna. No, no, go ahead. Okay, all I was gonna say is I agree with you, and frankly, I hope that happens because the PBS superheroes never-ending story documentary was fantastic, and thank God they got Joe Simon and Jerry Robinson and Joe Kubert, all these wonderful people who just passed away in the last five years, or, or you know, a little bit more maybe in the case of Joe Simon, but yeah, um, you know, so we got their takes before they passed away because I know I've said this before, I don't know if I said it last night but the 20th century really is that last dec- or century where not everything was recorded every moment, I mean certainly pre-90s and, you know, and, and certainly further back and so you really do have to rely on people who were there and that's why I love yeah. that Ramona Freyden is still with us and can speak clearly about you know her her beginnings in the late golden age early, early silver age in comics and um because a lot of people get it wrong and also getting back to the documentaries themselves when sometimes people will approach me and say hey I just made a comic book history documentary I have a very critical eye because honestly if it is just the basics of well there was superman and then came batman and the timely things it's like we've seen this already a million times in fact yeah, morgan exactly. morgan spurlock did his uh most recent documentary and it was just on this year i think it was on in the spring uh it was on the history channel and frankly thank god the second it was two nights it was two hours uh each night and thankfully the second part really did lean into the characters of color and more women that came in the 60s and 70s through the 90s and characters like Deadpool. And it's like, all right, it's about time because I don't see why they're making the same documentary over and over again. And as much as I, and truly, I think the PBS Superheroes Never Ending Story one was wonderful. I have friends that were involved in it and I think everyone came off great and they did a wonderful presentation but it wasn't that much more informative than the one that the History Channel had done in 2005 called Superheroes Unmasked. Yeah. And it's just like if you're giving me the same story over and over again, uh, there's a lot more to this. And I also think comics, much like film or much like novels, have reached that point of let's really appreciate the art form. And much like you do with filmmakers or like you were saying with rock people, yeah, let's let's really figure out i mean and and you know it's funny you mentioned neil obviously neil adams you know obviously that's a big trunk of the tree and think of all the different people that either worked for neil at continuity or simply just inspired him like a jim yeah, lee and stuff decade, like you know was, yeah yeah there was a decade and I, and I was i was you know uh you know part of that whole 90s thing with the you know with the jim lee and they kind of like were you know they would affectionately refer to it as the west coast look you know, with, um, you know, Jim Wilf, you know, Lifefield and, and uh, not, not so much McFarland, but uh, uh, Mark Silvestri. And, um, you know, and that was for about a decade, you know, of, of influence on the industry. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and, and those things, those things are really cool. And, but I, as far as the documentary, I just want to see, like, like nuance, like just the geek in me. I want to know, like, 
where this costume idea came from. You know what I mean? And, and sure. stuff like that. Like I, I did, I did um, a documentary, the um, the Brian Singer, Kevin Burns, Look Up in the Sky documentary, the Superman one that came out. I think it was uh, about the time Superman Returns came out. Yep, I remember it and, well. Uh, Go on. Yes, yeah, great, was, great documentary. A couple chapters. Yeah, and the thing, the cool thing about it is it really gets into the nuanced stuff. I think they even talk about like why he has the costume the way it was because it was like based on strongmen, you know, costumes. That's or, right. Like, you know, uh, like circuses and stuff yep. like that. And you know, people look at the little shorts, little trunks, and they go like, "Where the hell did that come from?" And it's like they were influenced by the strong men of the of the circuses. And That's exactly like that. right. So I'm, I'm, I love that stuff. Well, yeah. I agree. And also, again, because then uh, anachronistically, if that's the proper word, someone from today will go, yeah, isn't that weird? His underwear is outside his pants. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, dumbass, because unfortunately, you're not aware of circus culture. And it's okay, because Ringling Brothers just ended. So I can appreciate, you know, certainly some uh, young person not understanding what acrobats and, and circus strongmen wore back then but that's why it's like no there there's a purpose behind that a real reason behind that and it's not just and also i love grant morrison his uh book about the history of superheroes i find very funny because if you take them as well grant morrison this is on grant morrison's perspective that's fine but he really did like some of the things oh it's clearly that it's clearly based on this and it's like yeah no not really um, you know, I'm sorry. You th- it's okay that you think that way. That's fine. Grant, you're a genius. And, I, you know, the, everyone's got their own opinion. But it's like, yeah, it's not concrete the way you think it is. Uh, and, again, it's because well, people be, don't know. Yeah, that would be even great to just, like, have speculation. Like, if there isn't, if there isn't like, a concrete, you know, like you said, like a lot of those guys, sadly, have passed. Well, they, their story, you know, maybe some of those things haven't been documented so it'd be fun to even see like a couple or three or four you know different artists speculate on like why this design was you know existed or why it came about and things like that so you don't even necessarily give concrete you know reasons for it but maybe speculation you know like are you why uh, did they dress that way are you a star okay. are you a star trek voyager fan at all um i i kind of you know, I like the original um, sure. TV series, and I like the movies. Okay. I would say, as far as like Star Trek, I I do. I wouldn't say I'm not a fan, but I'm not like really, really no know, problem. Hardcore into it. There was a there was an episode on Voyager. Their doctor was a hologram and kind of an artificial intelligence character, and it's resurrected 700 years into the future in a museum, and there's a bunch of speculation of what the crew was like. And it's funny because, yeah, I mean, again, without any actual context and the ability to really ask until the doctor's programming is is activated again, they're under all these false premises of why things were the way they were. And again, I sometimes I think I see a lot in uh, comic book blogs and and uh, and also hearing younger creators on panels, they just get it wrong. And they think, well, it must have been this yeah. way. And it's like, no, and, you know, there's enough people around. Like, Paul, you know, Gardner Fox may be dead, but Paul Levitz isn't. And Paul worked with Gardner Fox and could probably come up with the right answer. Maggie Thompson, uh, you know, I mean, there's there are these wonderful people that still, you know, show up at either New York Con or, or San Diego Con and stuff. 
that are kind of the keepers. Mark Evan, you're a good example of that. And it's like, no, it's it's this way, and that's why. The 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 different stories about Vinnie Coletta continue to fascinate me. And I I sometimes get angry at some of my fellow podcasters who are just like, yeah, asshole, jerk, whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, they kept him around a lot. And I, I've spoken to enough creators who worked with Coletta, you know, directly. And it's like, I, there's another side to this story. And yeah, I, I mean, I hear his, he could be kind of, you know, a tough guy and stuff and like pretending to be a tough guy, I think, in some circles and may have been connected in some ways as far as other tough guys. But and and certainly he's you know always you know disparaged for the things he erased and took out of Kirby drawings and stuff. But then again, I want I look at things like his art on Wonder Woman, and he's a great good girl artist, and he's a really great yeah. romance artist. So it's like yeah, you know you can you can get angry with him for what he erased from Jack's work, but it's like that's not the full story of Vinnie Coletta. And I and again, I always appreciate anyone who knew him to. Give a different side to to Coletta. Yeah, I think I, it could be epic. Like I don't even know how you would categorize, you know, the family tree, you know, to to make a documentary like that. But I think it would be fascinating, and and maybe you would just, I don't know, like the Superman one that I was talking about is pretty in depth. So maybe you could do it character by character. But I don't even think that that would be as fun as just seeing how. Like all these other like pulp stuff influenced, you know, or even how film of the time or whatever influenced comics and vice versa. Just kind of just go up the whole tree and just as the branches come off and explore those ideas. And I don't even know how they would you know go about it, but I think it would be a lot of fun. No, I agree, and and I think as we get older, uh, thankfully because of niche programming that we're seeming to find on streaming these days. Someone's going to do it. Who knows? Maybe I'll do it. Damn it, I'll do it. Let me, <laughs> let me pick up the mantle. You know. I got some stories. Talk to me. There you go, man. No, absolutely. Well, and again, you know, I, I'm glad I had the chance to talk to, you mentioned influence of film uh, and, and pulps and stuff. Uh, r- really early on in Word Balloon, I got to have two conversations with Gene Colan. And he absolutely, you know, talked about his film influences. And, you know, my favorite in, in particular, and it was mid-career, it was in the 60s or early 70s, he had that great uh, Captain America car chase between him and the Red Skull right after uh, he had taken over the Captain America book from Jim Steranko. And he was, you know, he's like, oh, God, Bullet, the Steve McQueen movie, yeah. was so in his mind and he couldn't get away from it. And in his original layouts, it like was, you know, like five or six pages of this car chase. And Stan's like, hey, comic book, what are you doing? <laughs> Cut it back. You know, that's too much, man. And it just to get stories and, like that, you know. And car chases are hard to draw. They're probably a lot easier now with the internet. You can like photo, uh, you know, like ref things a little bit easier. But back then, like those guys were drawing that stuff out of memory. And oh, yeah. They might have had a picture or two, but... You had to do a whole car chase like that. You know, they were making up those uh, those angles. Absolutely, like yeah. absolutely, very funny, man. It's tough. Yeah, I'm telling you. So <laughs> I've done it once in the Time Masters, and it was tough. So are you? You know, um, you're based on the West Coast, and as you say, like part of the the tiers that you're offering are these anchor tips. Do people come up and tell you specifically, I want to be an anchor? I mean, we, again, we're doing exactly what I said I hope we wouldn't do in terms of referring to last night's conversation. But, you know, I talked to you about how 
it seemed like uh, some of the publishers are kind of flirting with the idea of just, you know, laying pencils directly, you know, printing directly from pencils and kind of leaving inkers out of the process. And I appreciated what you said in support of inkers. But also, first, let me ask you, like, are people coming to you and saying, hey, I want to be an inker? How do I do it? Yeah, there's, there still are a lot of people. I don't I don't see it waning, and I see, uh, you know, different age groups, too. I still see, like, you know, people that are late 20s or early 30s that haven't given up the dream. They're still pursuing it. Sure. And I see younger people coming in and saying, yeah, how, how do you go about, you know, doing this? You know, and, um, you know, some of the people still have the chasing Amy, like, well, it's just tracing, and, you know, sometimes it can't be just that, but... You know, a lot of the, the better inkers are guys that are bringing, you know, or enhancing the pencils, taking it to another level. And so, yeah, there's there's still there's still a young audience coming in and, and wanting to do this as a as a profession. And talk too about, as you said, um, that you really feel that inking is a very important part of the language of co- co- uh, comic storytelling. Oh yeah, I, I just think it's like what you were saying last night, where it, it seems like there's at least in the conversation and common conversation that there's this buzz like oh inkers are going to be phased out inkers are going to be phased out of comics and like I said yesterday as well um, I just don't I don't see that as happening the only the only reason for that that I've seen so far is just financial and it seems that it's mainly Marvel that's doing it where they're kind of like given A, B, C, D rates, and that they're kind of um, almost seemingly demeaning, like an inker's contribution to the book. And um, and thank you for bringing it up because I really feel strongly that there are just a few things that really identify a comic book or comic book artwork as comic book artwork. And I think one of the main things is the ink. Because the only place that inking really exists as a trade, as a profession, as an art form, is in comics. There, you know, like there used to be, um, you know, in advertising and things like that. They used to ink more because of the printing process and things like that. But now it really solely exists, unless it's you know for you know, like sometimes in galleries and stuff you'll see somebody dabble in ink or something like that. But as a as a regular art form, it's it really only exists in comics. And I think even when you get your you know uh, highfalutin you know New York City ad agencies that might you know like somebody wants a comic book you know illustration to sell their product, they still go back to you know, like a pen and ink type of drawing because it still represents comic book art. So if they see it as, like, that's how a comic book looks, then I don't understand why there would be people that are, you know, talking the opposite, like, oh, it's going to go away, it's going to go away. And I just think, why? All the best guys in the industry still today all have inkers. I don't see any real evidence of that. I see individuals wanting to express themselves maybe in a different way, like just pencils or, you know, like just Photoshop color or whatever it is, like, you know, full color, you know, illustrations. But even, you know, when we were kids, remember the Marvel fanfare books and the, the magazine size stuff? Absolutely. There were like pencil renderings in those and they were like, 
you know, gouache paintings, and there were all kinds of stuff that was in there. So that's always existed in comics. It's just another way to tell a story or express yourself. But as a main, you know, like a major art form, um, I think people think of, you know, comic books as being inked. Um, I think it's one of the very things that defines the art form. Um, and, yeah, I just don't see, I personally don't see the evidence of that. And even when people want to, you know, they say, well, what about the computer? What about the computer? And, you know, people are kind of inking on the computer, but it's still kind of emulating an ink line. You know, it still is that old black, you know, and white, you know, with the with the hatching that, you know, uh, represents like a gray tone sure so those all those things are still in place you know it's just a different it's just a different tool that they're using you know but that boldness um is still still as far as i'm concerned is amazing are you, you still know? are you still uh using paper or have you worked on a cintiq or any of the other digital uh you know tablet and and stylus platforms I have dabbled in it, but even I read an expose by like Brian Bowen, and he he started getting into it, and he says it's way more time consuming. He doesn't even know why he's doing it. He's just you know doing it to, I guess, to try something new. But for me, I think it would, you know, I have kind of dabbled, but I just think that it would take me more time to relearn or to retrain myself with the tool. Sure. I'm so much more proficient at it at this point. With, sure. You know, the more tactile approach with a brush and a pen and a bottle of ink. And also there's one thing that I will always have the advantage over those guys is I have an original at the end of the day, you know, that I can take pride in and, and possibly get it in the hands of the collector or somebody who really appreciates, you know, traditional comic book art. That's cool, man. No, I, um, I like I said, I, I, I wasn't sure. I had heard from creators that were inkers themselves, and they're like, I don't know, I'm not getting many calls lately, or less calls. And again, that was about 10 years ago, when around, you know, early, early in my uh, podcasting. So I'm glad to hear that that's not the case. But as far as, and as far as, you know, the Centiques and stuff, um, you know, I, I know people that, you know, are traditional artists and are very comfortable and, and have adapted to it and find it easy. So it is interesting to hear a guy like uh, Brian Ballin say, you know, well, you know, it's, it, I, you know, I don't like it as much. And I can appreciate that because that's exactly, it is that fine cross-hatching that I wonder how well, you know, comes across digitally. And I guess it depends on their art, the artist and their, their comfort level. It depends on, on the programming of the of what the tool will allow sure, you the to software. do. Like yeah. the reason I like a brush and a pen is because I can do anything with it. I understand the limitations and I can do it right then and there, but like a program I'm kind of at the mercy of what the program will allow me to do. So I still think it's kinda of limiting with what you can do and what you can't do. But at the end of the day, I still scan the artwork sure. with the digital file. So as far as the language, you know, the computer language, it it is a digital file. So sure. whether I did it traditionally or if I did it in the computer, it still registers the same, you know, for a colorist or a letter or editor or whoever. Of course. Um, yeah, and I still do a lot of cleanups and I kind of augment some of uh, my effects and things. Um, I've been bringing a lot of, like, grease pencil and dry brushing more into 
you know, smoke effects and things like that. Interesting. Because, um, Steven really, Steven Segovia really allows me to express myself that way. So I'll even go in there and I'll augment slightly, you know, with some of some of the brush tools and things like that. So it just kind of enhances the effect or smooths them out or makes them more bold or whatever. So I still kind of go in digitally and kind of, you know, tweak and, and enhance and stuff like that. So, Understood. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, I, I never say never. And I think if it, if it was a tool, if it, if it was a benefit, if I could see the benefits of it, I would embrace it in a heartbeat. You know, for me, for me personally. But if you were raised more with the computers and you were more, you know, like, it, it would be more intuitive for you to use that. But for somebody like me, you know, it would be, it's, it's retraining. You know, it's not, it's, it wouldn't come as easy. I understand. No, I understand. Let me ask you a question that I, I always forget to ask about some creator or to some creators uh, who've been around for, you know, uh, for a bit and, and have seen the highs and lows. Well, no, no, you know, this is, yeah, well, perspective, uh, you know, like we, like we talked yeah. about before. So tell me looking back at the, the, the early 2000s collapse after the speculation, uh, balloon burst. Yeah. Well, there, there you go. And, and yeah, not to, not to bring back, you know, stress, and then memories of stress, but was it? I mean, again, were you at the X office then? Did it impact you? Did you get? Oh my gosh! Like it. it the the good thing is, um, I had perspective prior, so I I wasn't in the same boat as a lot of the younger guys, and so I went. You know, I I had the heyday with Marvel. You know, working on the X Files with Jim Lee, Will Potashio and stuff like that. And then when the image, you know, move happened, there were like the core guys, but what people don't realize is that there were a lot of guys like me that went over too. You know, so Marvel wasn't just losing, you know, those core guys. They were also there was there was like support you know, the support team that they sure. were losing. Okay, wow. So yeah, tell me yeah. about that. Let's talk about that first. That's interesting. Well I I was gonna you know try to like yeah, we could get into that, but I'm just kind of giving you the backstory of how, like, there was there was the Marvel money, and then there was the Image money, and then I I kind of came in at Extreme Studios as like a mentor and as talent. So I kind of groomed and helped a lot of the new the new guys that came in the doors and helped Rob scout for you know talent and things like that. Um, Rob Liefeld. Yes. And so like there was a lot of the young guys that didn't have the perspective and they were making some really, really crazy money. And so I, I, I used to share office space with Dan Penosian and um, and we would talk. Like, this is not gonna last, man. This is not gonna last. So we were saving money. I mean, we were still being crazy with the money too, but we were being a little bit more conservative by the standards of, you know, everybody else. Sure. And, um, and sure enough, when it crashed, you know, a lot of those guys are like, what the hell? What the hell do I do now? And, and Dan and I, well, we kind of predicted this. You know, our houses are pretty much paid off, and we you know, got a good nest egg and stuff like that. So, you know, we'll be all right, um, you know, as things kind of, you know, right the wrong, I guess, of the speculators leaving. But for me, it, was, it wasn't as simple as that because I had black and white. So within a year, this is this is how crazy 
when it when the bottom dropped out. Within the the year prior to the the market, I guess correcting itself was um, I put out three issues of Black and White, and it was I forget what it was like. It was way up there in the sales. We made crazy crazy money, and so everybody that we worked with at the time were also charging us an arm and a leg. You know what I mean? Because it's like, oh, you're making more money. So all the vendors that we were working with, film output, colorists, all those, you know, they were all charging us a lot of money too. And so what people don't realize is when the things corrected and went back to, I guess, what they were supposed to be before it was artificially, you know, inflated, that the vendors weren't readjusting their prices. Wow. So in the year that it took me, you know, to finish the ongoing series, because I was going to come out with another black and white series, because the miniseries did so well, I think we were like the 15th, like when it debuted, we were in the top 15, you know, and that's with all the image books and all the Marvel books and all the DC books. Sure, like, wow. Debuted, I think at 15, yeah. Um, it was right up there with like Jay Lee's Hell Shop, you know, so. Crazy. It was it was good. Yeah, I was. Oh my gosh, Stan, thank you. It was an amazing time. But then, within that year that it took me to put out the ongoing, the market was diminishing. And I, I have a good friend, Nick Perucci, and he follows. You know, he's the dynamite guy. Yes. Um, he, he follows the trends and everything. And I would be on the phone like, "What is it now? What is it like every couple months?" And he would tell me, and he'd go, "It's still good. It's still a good time to release the book." And then by the time I did release it, I broke even on it. Like, you know, like the year prior, this was a huge success. And then the next year, just within a year, I put out the ongoing and it broke even. Wow. It was great. Yeah. And then, you know, at, by that point, I had Jaime Mendoza, Inky Mean. I was paying him, like, a pretty good you know, rate. Sure. And then, like I said, all the other vendors, I was working with Oli Optics, you know, uh, Steve Olaf's company. Yes, yes. And all that. And, and I remember going to those guys and saying, would you adjust your rate? Because if we could bring the price of doing this book down, we could still publish it. And I, I had like two other issues, you know, cause like you had three issues in the can before, you know, you launch a new series. Yes, yes. So I had three issues done. Yeah, and so then... They were like, mm, no, no, wow, because they obviously did not see the, <laughs> the writing on the wall, and so inevitably, a lot of those vendors and stuff went out of business because they didn't adjust soon enough. And I think if they would have adjusted, black and white could have existed because the numbers, by the standards, I think it was like, I think we sold. 70 or 80,000 wow. copies of the first ongoing. And by today's standards, my gosh, that would be considered a huge hit. That's a top but five book. Of, yeah, know, that's a top yeah, five book today. Coming off of half a million sales. Yes. Yeah, coming off a of half a million sales or whatever. It's, it's nothing. Right, so I right. I just remember like, being so disappointed and just saying, come on, guys, can we, can we rally here? Can we do something? No, no. So then that's when I just, you know, I licked my wounds and went back to Marvel when Bob Harris was not exactly, you know, welcoming with open arms. Crazy. You know, he, he made me eat some pretty, pretty crappy stuff to, uh, wow. to gain his trust. Wow. Wow. You know? 
Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I, I mean, you know, you work you work with Bob now at DC. Everything's all right. Oh yeah, and and you know, I mean, we ironed things out. You know, at the time. Sure. The thing is, I don't I don't blame him because you know, I mean, that is quite you know, losing all those ex guys and you kind of consider them your friends and stuff. Sure. And, and then they all kind of leave at the same time. I don't know if people know this, but when Image when those guys left Marvel. That made Forbes magazine news. You yes. Know, it made business news. It affected Marvel, like, stock and stuff. Like, it was, it was a big deal, you know? Well, yeah, all the, all, the go- all the golden egg-laying goose geese left in a huff. And like you said, I, like an idiot, of course their support staffs went with them. Of course all you guys went yeah. with them. Why wouldn't you? So, yeah. th- that's it. You know, and again, that's the problem, Art, with me. That really is when I checked out of comics. Um, I have to confess, because I have tremendous respect for all the image creators and everything all of you guys did. Uh, It was a huge business shift. It really helped pave the way for what's happening now. And as Bendis says, a lot of creators stood on the shoulders of these guys who initially stood up and said, yeah, you know, um, yeah, we're making great money with you, but we could make more if we did our own thing. Um, But all that said... I, when it was art over story, at least that was my perception as a reader, that's kind of when I checked out. And I really felt that uh, both not only in the image books but also at DC and Marvel too, th- there just was yeah. this like lack of clarity in storytelling. And the splash pages were much yeah, more important. I think, I think also what it was is this, it was a little bit of like we're going to show you what's more important so at, at some point it was also like story characters um not as important as the visuals yeah and so i think a little bit of that was it was an exercise in you know we're going to show you and we're going to do it with like we're going to write our own stories you know and we're going to do right sure you know all that all that stuff and for right or wrong um they did do it but i think what the good part that came out of that is when I did go back to Marvel and, and, and paid my dues again and proved, you know, to Bob that I was a good guy and all, is um, that there was there was a moment, it was about, I don't know, it was about when Ben just started coming in and yeah. and um, and Mike Miller or Mark Miller yes. and that stuff, where it became like for, for kind of a brief time, well, you know, I'm an older guy, maybe it was even 10 years, I don't know how long it was. But there was definitely, there was a good, not compromise, there was a good partnering between writing and art. Like there was, it seemed like there was a mutual respect and there was, there was people contributing equal and there was respect. And then I think, just to be honest, I think what happened after that is I think writers got into a pissing contest with artists and I think that contest is still happening. Agreed. Where writers were like, we're more important than the pencilers or the artists. And so I think that there was, you know, like, like everybody pushes back, they get they get upset, like, and so they're like, well, I'll prove to you or I'll show you. And But there was that one sweet little window, like when Ben just started, you know, and we were working on, you know, Ultimate Spider-Man and the Ultimate X-Men books with Absolutely. Uh, Mark Miller. Yes. You know, and all that stuff. I th- thought, oh my gosh, all the Ultimate books were... And even before that, when I was working with Pacheco on, on the X-Men books, I thought, this is story and art. I could, I could sense it when I got, 
you know, and also Carlos is a guy of substance, too. But so is Bagley and so were all those other guys that I was working with, you know, as well. But there was, you could see it in, the, in their character, there was story, there was, you know, there was all that stuff going on. And I think now it's kind of, there's, there's you know, like, like we were talking yesterday about the Jurgens uh, Superman stuff, the economic. Yes, which I love. There, there seemed like, yeah, there was, there was that kind of harmony again with writing and, and storytelling, you know, that, that they were kind of meshing again. And, and I would like to see that because for me, I don't, I don't, I mean, when I was younger, it was more like, I'll show you and, and I'll, I'll be so brash and I'll be so bold over these pencils that you'll notice me. And then colorists would do that same thing. And then everybody's kind of fighting with each other to be the loudest on the book. And that was kind of the image stuff, too, where there was that competition to be heard. Like, I'm, you know, I'm brasher, I'm bolder, I'm this, I'm that. And there was never any concern about, like, harmony within, you know, or, res- or mutual respect, maybe, that was given among the different talents. And I do think all the most successful books that you look back fondly at, you'll find that those three things, or maybe four now, with coloring, you know, like Agreed. writing, yes. and coloring, you know, those those you know four things or three things in the in the case of the older books, um, is definitely what people respond to. I agree with you, and I'm glad to hear, as someone that was part of the uh, ultimate experience. Uh, with Ultimate Spider-Man and Ultimate X-Men that you felt it too that there was harmony between the writer and the artist and I mean Brian has always said that about his collaboration with Bagley and the subsequent artists that followed on Ultimate Spider-Man in particular Uh, and I you know again not being the biggest X-Men fan (coughs) excuse me hold on Uh, not being the biggest X-Men fan, I didn't follow up and have those conversations with Mark Miller and I've in, in the you know many times that I've had him on Word Balloon. So it's good to hear. Uh, and, and you're right. And I think, I think that is the best. And also putting in the importance of colorists as well, which I really do think in the last 15 or, or so years has really kind of finally gotten the due that it deserves uh, as far, you know, and, and people like Laura Martin and you know, uh, Jordi Belair is certainly a very popular colorist. My friend Rod Rice, who I just spoke to before uh, our uh, conversation, you know, they're good examples of guys and women that uh, that can do the job and, and bring, you know, the importance of, of coloring to the art and everything. So, no, I agree with yeah, you. Well, well, it's yeah, interesting um, when... When people start leaving Extreme Studios, um, Jeff Matsuda, who is, he's, he's mostly known now for animation, like Jack Chan Adventures and, and the Batman animated. Yes, yes. Um, it was called The Batman. Um, yeah, the Batman second guy. one, the one after yeah. the animated series, yes. Yeah, and then there was Sam Liu. Um, Sam Liu's amazing. Yeah. You know, one of the best, dec- yeah, one well, of the best animation directors. Kind- yeah. Yeah, well, well, we all kind of left Extreme together. Interesting. And then there was also, there was Chris Leitner, and then there was Aaron, um, I can never say his name, Lucen, Lucen, I think, and they were the liquid color guys, like Aaron and Chris, or Aaron and Chris. And so when they left, they were like color guide people over at Extreme, and so when they left 
they went with Jeff and I too. So we just in in uh, in your Belinda, you know, the home of Richard Nixon. Yes, indeed. We had a studio, a little a little studio, and actually I subleased from the Nixon Library and Estate, which is just a funny little side note. <laughs> and we just we just kind of liked each other's company, so we just had a studio. We weren't necessarily working with each other, but it ended up working out that way. And so Jeff and I were doing X Factor together. And so Jeff who? Uh, which Je- Jeff Jeff Loeb or which Jeff? Um, Jeff um, Matsuda. Oh, excuse me, Jeff Matsuda. Pardon me. Excuse me. Go on. Yeah, Jeff Matsuda was was doing the penciling, and then I was doing the ink work, and then we started trying to get Chris, you know, and Liquid in, and like, hey, how about doing this cover? How about doing, you know? And then I think what kind of broke uh, Chris and Liquid was I did the cover. I penciled and inked the cover to. Marvel tryout book two. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, I do. It was an X-Men cover. Yes. And um, and Chris did the color work on it. And so then those guys just started setting the high bar as far as mainstream. Like, this was non-image coloring. This was, like, mainstream Marvel coloring. Um, you know, that they started doing. And I think those guys are the guys that really pioneered and kind of elevated, at least for mainstream comics, that type of coloring. Um, it was amazing the stuff that they did, and it was it was kind of it was really a special time because I could see you know I would ink it and then I could see those guys color it right after it. So you know Jeff and you know um, and Chris and myself like right there you know putting all that stuff together. I remember when Chris and Arn were putting the liquid logo together. They were like, "What do you think about this?" You know? Wow. And so yeah, it was pretty neat. I've been I've been real lucky in my career. I kind of Well, and again, you brought you brought something to the table, man. I mean, that's why so many great artists and stuff obviously have worked with you as an inker. And I'm, I you know, I mean, that's the thing. You you look at your body of work and everything, and yeah, you've you know you've worked with the best. And I think on on the top stuff, I know you've just finished your Action Comics run and are uh, yeah. it, at just getting started with Superwoman, correct? Yeah, yeah. So Stephen and I, Stephen Segovia, a brilliant, brilliant penciler. Um, sometimes I gotta pinch myself, but I still get to work with you know this caliber of talent. And the the cool thing is, I, I I pencil as well, so I'm always like learning from these guys. And I tell that guy all the all the time. I call, I, I say, Stephen, you're the boss. You're you're my mentor. And he's like, No, you're the boss. And I'm like, No, 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 no. Trust me. <laughs> and so yeah, we did our run on action, um, and it was amazing. You know, working with Jurgens again, and the stories that they were telling was they were you know, really amazing. And uh, so then we're still in the Superman office, but we're doing Superwoman now together. So Stephen and I are doing that, and he's turning in some amazing work. I hope everybody's picking up that Superwoman book because there's some great stuff coming out of there. Who's writing it currently? The writer on the book is uh, is Kate Perkins. Very cool, and you know, I, uh, I, I'm, I got to be honest. Um, I'm, I'm always against making the Greek chorus of of supporting characters into permanent heroes. I always think, you know, it's fun when Lana was Elastic or uh, Insect Queen, and Jimmy Olsen was Elastic Lad occasionally and stuff. Or even better, I loved when Jimmy Olsen and Robin would team up as the Olsen Robin team. Back in the uh, in the sixties, <laughs> uh, there you go. There's my nerd cred, but uh, but um, 
I gotta be honest. Yeah, I, I uh, at first, you know, even when they said it with the switcheroo at the beginning of the book, and they said it was going to be Lois, and then she dies, and then Lana now is super Superwoman. It's like, I don't know. I, I, I gotta be honest, man. And and, fr- and frankly, I haven't been reading the book, but I'm like, just let Lana Lang be Lana Lang. Does she have to have superpowers? She's a she's a great character, and even in the frankly, what I find is mistreatment of her in the in the successive reboots. Um, I kind of wish she still was. It's it's okay because now they're married, but I I really like the fact that Lana was this former love of Superman's, and and that she kind of was around to be somebody you know like the Betty and Veronica sort of thing, and and also and, and she could be a confidant because she knew him when, she, yes, when he was younger exactly. So when he was struggling with the powers and he was struggling with all those things. He is a confidant, right. you know, well, and, she's, and a shared respect with her that they can talk about. Her. Right. Don't you think, really, she's become the modern-age Pete Ross? Although Pete, although Pete supposedly just kind of kept the secret, even from Superman himself, and didn't... Or maybe they... You know, I don't even remember in the Bronze Age as adults if Pete finally is like, yeah, I always knew you were Superboy, but I felt responsible to help you when you couldn't help yourself. But that's the thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That... I mean, and it is even cooler that they do make it Lana, and that yeah, Lana knows Clark. Lana knows Clark inside out and out, and and she can knows be Clark that Clark in a way that, that Lois never would or will. Right, exactly, and that's and I think that's more than enough value of of Lana Lang being there, and and again because I think th- things are still shaking out in terms of whatever retcons they're going to do that differentiate the new Fifty Two from uh, Rebirth. Maybe we'll get back to that core of their relationship. Maybe they already have. I don't know. Uh, but I. But yeah, that's the thing. Is like it's like Foggy Nelson does not need superpowers to puff up his role in Daredevil. And and again, yeah. that, that's Matt's confessor and confidant and stuff. I mean, that's the thing. You need you need those people, and that's also why the Lois and Clark marriage works. In a way that when people are like, oh no, they can't be married because that breaks attention. It's like, no, dumbass. This is this is the one person that Clark can go to and be like, I don't know what to do. And I mean, it used to, and I loved in the Burn era that it was his parents that he could go to and say, I don't know what to do. And and again, Lana, Lana and Lois can fill that need in a very important way. Yeah, and like um, uh, this is a funny story. Like Mike Carlin, who was my editor on uh, Adventures of Superman, and just a brilliant, like, as far as a leader, you know, an editor, he was one of the best I've ever worked with. I believe it. And he's still at DC, but in a, in a higher capacity. I guess he, he's doing, like, animation. He's yes, animation he is. Can I tell you very quickly, and, uh, my frustration, they won't let me talk to Mike, and I've had great personal conversations with Mike, but DC management won't. Mike's a great guy. He's, he's amazing, and I'm like, God, I'd love to have you on the podcast. He goes... If the bosses will let me, I'm happy to do it. And, of course, the bosses won't let him. So I'm going to have to wait for Mike to retire okay. to uh, fi- yeah. finally get the stories. But go on. You, you go on. So. Yeah, you're that, that family tree. That would be, like, get Mike in there because Mike's got some stories because he even has an origin, like, where he worked at Marvel. Sure. Know, yes. DC. Yes. Yeah. Um, but anyways, like, so we um, – I got to go to a screen. I was lucky enough to get invited to go to the screen of Man of Steel. Okay. And so I was sitting next to Mike through the whole movie. Oh man! And so when we got out, when we got out, we just looked at each other and said, "Yeah, it's about time 
you know, Lois needs to know that. Oh, good. Okay, okay. It was one of the it was one of the better things I think that came out of of the movie. I think you're right. The thing is, is how I mean, it starts making Lois look kind of stupid after a while. Yes. You know where she can't figure out. You know that uh, this guy is Superman, or she's. She's a masterful journalist, like she's an investigative reporter, you know, all those things. Like, to keep, to make her have that status in the DCU as, like, the ultimate reporter and, you know, all those things, I think you've got to make her smart. I agree. You know, she has to, she has to be intelligent, and, and since she already has the tie with Clark Kent and Superman, it's, it's perfect, and they kind of already are crushing on each other anyway, so... Why not? Why not get them together? Well, and that was always, as you, I'm sure, know, that was Jerry Siegel's initial intent. And it was the bosses at National that stopped him from doing it in the late 40s. There was that great story. I never knew that. Oh, no kidding. Wade Wade found the script. That's cool. Yeah, Wade found the script, and it was, just like in the 90s, him revealing himself. And also that because he respected her as much as a, a reporter and her mind that moving forward, they were going to be a team. And that, that Lois was really going to be kind of a, you know, almost, you know, foot soldier investigator and, and protecting Clark as much as, and helping him in a very forward-thinking Rosalind Russell, his girl Friday sort of role of, of being a real, yeah. you know, crusading reporter. And it was, yeah, National that said, no, nah, not interested. That's okay. Keep it stupid. Yeah, and I think, I think out of, all characters in comics and and in you know just stories in general, it it usually can be the kiss of death when you get like sure. you know, a romantic couple together. But the thing is, Superman, as Jurgens has proven, even with the kid, it, he almost is in a way cooler as a dad and, and a husband. Agreed. You know, like it, it just kind of seems like it fits the wholesomeness of the whole thing, and then like the whole you know, like, morality play and, and things, it seems to kind of work better because now he has a son he's raising. Absolutely. You know what I mean? So yes. it just comes out organically versus, like, preachy or heavy-handed. You know, he's trying to teach, you know, his kid, you know, how to be a good person. And also, know? I don't understand why the powers that be at DC have not come out with a Lois Lane comic. Because if there's any... You know what? Oh my gosh, I, I have a pitch. I have a Lois Lane idea. Because I've been thinking the same thing. Like, Makes no she's sense. such an awesome character as a reporter. Yep. Like, that's just a kick-ass thing. Well, yeah, why isn't, why isn't Lois Lane oh, running around the entire DC Universe as an investigative reporter? It doesn't make... And I understand now she's got to raise John Kent, but it doesn't make sense. She should be able to do this. Yeah. And the thing is, too, um, like what I was hoping they would do in the movie, because I did, I did think like one of the better ideas that did come out is that Lois did figure out that yeah. Clark was Superman. Yeah. But I also thought what would have been good as a as a morality play is like they kind of made her a little bit more gray area in that. But like if she was really a woman of integrity, a reporter of integrity, that it would be neat to see her actually maybe skew the news to protect Clark. You know what I mean? I do. Like to basically 
go to people that were like saying, oh, you know what? Clark looks a lot like Superman. And for her to do everything in her power, kind of to make that not seem possible. Absolutely. And I always had, I always had this as the most plausible way, and, and, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought, I think it's a good idea, where I think just a simple argument or in a debate, if she just says, why would you think Clark would be Superman? Why would you think anybody would be Superman? Why wouldn't you just think Superman was Superman all the time? Right. Like, why would you think he was, he was a human? He could, he's, He's in Peru one minute, and he's in Metropolis the next, and the next he's in New York City, and next time he's in Mexico City. Sure. You know, like, he's everywhere. He can do everything. He's out in space. Why would you think that guy would have time to be a reporter at the, you know, the Daily Planet? And why would you think, you know, he would humble himself to that extent to be that? You know, it's a, it's a ridiculous thing to even think. And I always thought that that would be a good no, I agree. And I also have appreciated the artists like most recently Frank Quitely on uh, All-Star Superman, where Clark really goes out of his way to look stoop-shouldered, to almost make himself look a little smaller and oafish. And, and, and in that same wonderful way that Christopher Reeve did it in the film. And even Brandon Routh was very capable yeah. of, of a different Clark Kent to his Superman. And, you know, taking nothing away from Harry Cavill, because I think he's actually a very good Superman. He's a great actor, yeah. But I do think that his Clark Kent is just Superman wearing glasses. And, and you yeah. know, and, and also I liked, uh, and I love Dean Cain. I thought Dean Cain really was fun. And also that Clark was kind of the hip, suave guy, and Superman was almost nerd-like and robotic in his, you know, the way he had his hair slicked down and everything. Um, compared to the way Clark looked. And I, I think they obviously did that to play up the moonlighting kind of romance that they were going for in that love story yeah, show. Yeah, also, like, the, the switch is he's more kind of Clark than he is, you know, Superman. Exactly. Because it's called Lois and Clark, so yeah. you have to make the Clark character seem a little cooler. Well, but, like, I'm, I'm not saying that you don't, you don't still play up the Clark identity, like he doesn't oh, I understand. have a identity. Sure, sure. Oh, okay. okay. No, 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 I realize yeah. that, but what I'm saying is that um, in certain artists' hands, there was more of an attempt to conceal the identity. The true identity. Yeah, yeah. So, that, so that it wouldn't even occur to people that, that there is that similarity. Because I do think that, that it, it's fair to say that, that that whole, hey, how come Clark's never around when Superman is, has almost been played out to the point where, like you said, your argument is very valid. Of course, super, being Superman's a full-time job, a 24-7 job. Why wouldn't it be? He's saving the world every two seconds. Um, what I loved about the original, and this is an argument I used to have with Jeff Loeb, uh, I love the, the George Reeves portrayal because that's the other thing is I always feel like sometimes uh, in the hands of a wrong writer, Clark Kent as an investigative reporter is a great character and, and can get into places that being Superman would be impossible to do, but just as being this yeah. civilian can do it. And also, again, I always loved that he wasn't a milk toast in the, the George Reeves show and was just as forceful as Superman as he was as Clark Kent. And I would love when he would have his conversations with Inspector Henderson and he'd be like, now quit beating around the bush, Bill. 
We both know how serious this is. What aren't you telling me? All right, Kent, here's the real story. You know, and it's just that kind of like, yeah, man, it's like Clark Kent's a badass too. And also that I loved, I loved too that when, when they were in trouble, hang on, when they were always in trouble, I always loved when they wouldn't say, gee, I wish Superman were here. Jimmy and Lois would be like, I wish Mr. Kent were here. He'd know what to do. He'd know what to do, yeah. That's the Jimmy line, right? Exactly. Oh, Mr. Kent. <laughs> there, yeah. So what were you going to say? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no, no, no! I, I, I'm totally in agreement. I just think there's there's ways that you can play the dual identity, and that you can make you can make Lois still look intelligent, and you can actually still make Clark look, you know, because like you said, you don't have to play Clark, Clark necessarily as the, the you know the the real humbled guy, because you could still play him as a functional like, yeah. reporter because. To have to have that job, there has to be there has to be you have to have some kind of gumption. You have to have some kind of dig down. You know, otherwise, how could you have that job? Totally. You know, you ever, unless he was just doing fluff pieces. Have you ever heard on This American Life, the NPR show? They had a great um, essay, and it was a fictional essay, but it was basically the story was that Superman and Lois broke up. And Lois started dating a normal guy. And and the story is told from the normal guy's point of view. And he's like, you know, her old boyfriend Superman was always still around and I can never measure up or whatever. And ultimately, you know, and like he loses his job. So Superman lets him be his sidekick. And it's really this very, the the guy feels like, oh God, I'm working for my, you know, my girlfriend's ex-boyfriend. This is horrible. (laughs) And the best is at the very end, she goes back to Superman and he goes out to drink and says, so I, I, I needed to talk to the one guy I knew, you know, would li- at least hear me out. And that's my good buddy, Clark Kent. And he pours his soul out to Clark and is saying, man, if Superman were here right now, I would tell him off and tell him to go fuck himself or whatever. And he's like, and Clark was such a good friend and laughed along with me. And it really was this great, you know, you didn't, at least I didn't take the essay in terms of that Superman was being a jerk, but that again, that he understood and was connecting with this guy on a human level. And it really was this like great little piece of fluff fan fiction that, that was so cute, but the guy really nailed uh, how great Superman is, and really just like like the lowest thing. It was terrific. It, I don't know if you've ever heard that story. No, but they kind of played a little bit of, on that with the, the Brad and Ralph Superman, where, you know, Lois had moved on and she was with a normal guy. Right. But they were trying to show, like, that he was a heightened guy, too. You know, he was a pilot. Oh, yeah. An investigative reporter and all that other stuff. So in his own right, he was pretty cool. But guess what? Well, and again, that's one of those that's one of those weird wrinkles of that Singer movie, where you know I understand Superman's probably still pining for Lois, but not cool that he's kind of watching the house and stuff and watching them be a family. It was yeah, it was a little icky. I mean, yeah, I I I don't know. I I I would love to. I, I wish Brian Singer would have the comfort level to really talk about how he made that movie, starting with the fact of. I love, um, and now I'm blanking, um, oh God, Richard Donner. Richard Donner's great. And yeah. thank and thank God for yeah. Richard Donner and those two movies. Because, you know, I he... I think it's set the bar for all superhero movies. Absolutely. But that said, it seemed like their choice in Superman Returns to returning to that storyline, it's like, um, who says Richard Donner is the George Lucas of the Superman mythos? 
It's like you can you yeah. can you can tell new fresh you know takes on Superman. Now, unfortunately, we got what we wish for when Zack Snyder took over, uh, and we you know. Yeah. But uh, but no, it's uh, that's why I hope. Well, God, I'll tell you. I don't know how you felt about it. Are you watching the Supergirl TV show? No, but I've heard everybody that I respect. Um, as far as you know, giving me good reviews and says it's really good. It's a great show, but it's even kind of like it's kind of what the Superman movies should be. Yes, but beyond that, their actual depiction of Superman is letter perfect, and it was so great because oh. he's in the first two episodes of the second season and the last two episodes of the second season, and in those first two episodes, well, and even before that, they had a very cute uh, uh, phone text conversation where you never see Clark, but he's just responding with texts. And he's just so positive. And, Kari, you're doing great. I'm so proud of you. I know your parents would be proud of you. Just, like, hitting every, like, you know, again, another wrinkle of the new 52 in the comics that drove me nuts. Why do Superman and Supergirl and Superboy all hate each other? It's like, no, no, bad, wrong, wrong. And so then when he finally showed up on camera, it's perfect. It's, It's a combination of... A lot of the stuff that Jeff Johns has brought to the character, but also callbacks to the John Byrne era, and to the point of Cat Grant being you know head over heels in love with Clark, which is hilarious to see. But no, it was just this guy they got, and I forget his name, was not a big muscle man guy, was basically slightly bigger than the very small Supergirl, and yet it just carried off the mantle so well. And and it was most you know obviously it it has a lot to do with the writing of the character but also the delivery by the actor and truly is the best Superman uh, of recent memory including Henry Cavill and certainly including Brandon Ralph and uh, Ralph and uh, you know everybody post Christopher Reeve you know I mean Tom Welling obviously yeah. did a fine job back in the day as well in Smallville yeah I think I think he became like the Tom Welling became. Uh like a good actor as the series progressed. You I can agree. actually see him getting his chops and stuff from the first episode to, you know, to the last. Oh yeah. So that was, that was, really, that was really good to watch. I Did, think, I think that show also had a brilliant supporting cast. Like the guy that played, uh, was it Rosen, Rosenbaum? The, yeah, Michael the, Rosenbaum. The guy that played Black Luthor. Yep. And then, um, gosh, the Dukes of Hazard guy. And then John Schneider. Lang being the mom, you know, the, yeah, like that was, that was brilliant to make, like, Ma and Pa Kent, like, more, like, not in their prime, but, like, they're younger and more virile and more, yes. they can be more active. Because because the thing is, also, what always was weird is who ran, who supported the farm? Like, if, if Pa Kent was, like, so old. 65, Kent, yeah. You know, yeah, who was, who was actually taking care of this? Was it just Clark? Well, Well, you know, in the comics, eventually the Kents moved to the general store and moved to the city, moved to Smallville proper, and were not on the farm the entire time. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I stopped watching about the midway point. Oh, no, no, no. I mean the comics. I'm talking about the Silver Age and and Bronze Age comics. Yeah. I don't remember that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then also there was that moment uh, or a few, I don't even know how long it lasted, but some sort of alien mineral like kryptonite de-aged uh jonathan and martha to like their 40s or maybe early 50s um and they had brown hair again and seemed younger and i almost almost the same age as uh john schneider and i'm forgetting annette o'toole of course 
who played Lana yeah. and also played Martha. Yeah, so I no, it almost did. It, it's funny how, uh, yeah, the comics briefly did that and then re-aged them right before they passed away. Uh, it's uh, yeah. I, I loved the Superboy comics. Those those were terrific. I know Welling Welling was great. It was a great cast. And again, that that Clark Lex relationship that was so great about the Bronze Age, in that you know deep down, Lex Luthor knew Superboy, so he knew how to push Superman's buttons. And uh, you know, there's that classic scene we briefly talked about it last night on, in Kingdom Come uh, when they're at Planet Krypton. And Clark and Bruce are, yeah, Clark and Bruce are talking and, uh, you know, Bruce says, well, you know, I caught Luther trying to hack into the bat, you know, the computer in the Batcave. He says hello, by the way. And Clark's all excited and smiling, like, really? And Bruce is like, no. <laughs> and again, it's because you can break Superman's heart. And in deep down, much like Harvey Denton and Bruce and Batman, you know, he wishes that they were still friends. So, yeah. neat stuff. You see, that's the kind of stuff that's great about comics. And, I mean, you know, that's like classic yeah. soap opera, you know. Too and I think, like, your comics, they go into different trends, and then they come back, and you get to explore these things. And I think that, historically speaking, um, that these characters can endure all these changes. Agreed. You know, even some of them for, for the, like, the most horrible um, of decisions, and then they can still kind of sustain it. And... Um, and rise above, and I think that's just because in the DNA, like, it just, it does resonate somehow with people, and that they respond to it, and, um, you know, just to bring the Zack Snyder stuff, like, I hope, I hope they're able to kind of bring it back to something where, you know, it's a definitive Superman, it's Superman that you look back on, you know, kind of like the first two, you know, um, Richard Donner films, and, you know, this is a great, a great Superman. This was a great time for Superman, and I think um, it's it's kind of it's iffy if they're going to be able to do that right now. But I I would like to see that because I think with the budget they have now, the money, and with because I think that Harry Cavall is, is that how you say his last name? Henry Cavill. Cavill. Um, I've seen him in other movies, and he's absolutely charming. Yes. He can charm the socks off of anybody. And then I just watch the Superman films, and I just think, they don't give him anything to do. Like, he has nothing really to do within the movies. And I'm just kind of, like, how do you take that kind of actor and not give him those moments? You know, like... It would be as criminal as, uh, oh, what's her name, Gal Gadot, not giving her those moments in Wonder Woman. Absolutely. She's just absolutely charming. Like yep. She'll, she just, yeah, she just acts her, you know, buns off and, and just wins you over. And I just think there there isn't really anything definitively like that in either Batman, Superman, or, you know, Man of Steel. And it's a shame because they, like you said, too, last night, where they, they also had a great supporting character like Jonathan Kent and, and Martha Kent. Great know, actors great that, actors. yeah, great actors who weren't given great dialogue or great <clears throat> character motivation to make sense. I mean, they, they, right. they, they, they took out the, <clears throat> the real, the value of the Kents teaching Clark the lessons of how to be a man. I mean, they're, they're the reason why there's the man in Superman because it's those yeah. great Midwestern kind of family values of, of course we're going to help Clark. We're Kents. We help people. And that's where he learns how yeah. to help people. 
in in a in a more direct way. That's how it is in the comic books and in uh, you know the the good portrayals of the Kents. But then, yeah, I, I this paranoia that uh, and and God, I mean, again, I mean, I was I was really focusing on um, Kevin Costner's role that he was given of don't trust them don't trust people you know it's going to be it's going to be a problem if you reveal yourself to the point too where martha in super in batman versus superman says if they can't appreciate you clark then the hell with them and it's like who the fuck are you martha kent you're no martha kent get the hell out of here yeah well do you remember the line in the in in man of steel where he's like what what, Dad, should I not have helped those people? Yep. And he's like, I don't know, maybe. Maybe. And like, oh, my God. Exactly. You know, I, I was just thinking, like, like if, if my son had saved a buckload of kids, I would be like, oh, my gosh, I am so proud of you, son. This is amazing. You saved all those kids. And then I would worry about keeping a secret identity, you know, like after right. that. But I would be so... I'd be so praising him. I'd be go, oh my gosh, and, you know that is amazing. And then you know the son would go, yeah, but they all saw me do that. Like you know, now everybody you knows I can do these things. And then you, and then the, the dad, as a dad, you just go, don't worry about it. You know, we'll work that out when that time right. comes. Right. You know, yeah. We'll cross we'll that bridge when we get to it. But not say like maybe. Exactly. Like, maybe you should well, save those kids. Well, and again. I agree, and and it and it, it makes him more human. It makes Kevin Costner more grounded and more real. And as we talked about last night, it seems like that was Snyder's concern was to make the Superman mythos as real and grounded as possible. But again, there are good people, and the Kents are that that shining example of even if everyone else in a community is shitty, Clark, we're going to be good to people because we're the Kents, and that's what Kents do. And you're and you're a Kent. You know, I mean, and that's why, you know, and then again, then then they did have other moments, too, where, you know, he says something like, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm your son or whatever. He's like, you are my son. You know, so they had a couple good moments like that. But, yeah, I, I just again, I mean, it's easy. It's easy to pick on these two movies. And luckily, you know, I, I, as we said last night, um, I, I'm very sorry for the, the circumstances in which Zack Snyder is leaving the franchise. That said, Kind of glad that he's gone. The guy, as we said last night, doesn't know sunlight if it hit him in the face. That whole muted, uh, filtered, uh, dark kind of uh, world is so stupid and so uh, uh, antithetical to what you know you need for, if that's the proper word, to uh, to to convey the positive nature of the DC universe. Do you remember when Kurt Busiek wrote the JLA versus Avengers uh, crossover? Yeah. And the Marvel people go to the DC universe, and they're like, "It's so clean, it's so like perfect. What's what's with this universe?" Yeah. And it's that's the irony that it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe that is the more optimistic and positive place as compared to the dreary, why so serious DC universe. Yeah. Well, the thing is too, like if you're going to create a universe, isn't it better to have it as an overall tone that is that is semi generic because then you can you can take it into all different places you can go from that place to really really dramatic or you can go to funny or you can go to whimsical or you can go to you know romantic you can go to all those places from that one tone but if if your tone is really dark there's nothing really that you can do with that you're just that's the world. The world is this dark, cynical place. 
and there's nowhere else you can go. So everything is dictated by that visual, which is the dark, brooding, cynical yep. take on the world, which, by the way, doesn't, those colors don't even exist in nature. Right. That is a totally <laughs> manufactured palette. I, even on a stormy day, it, it doesn't really look like that. Agreed. And I always think they look like bad, they look like bad video game graphics. Um, and yet they're costing hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't think Warner Brothers getting their money's worth out of those things. Agreed. But then, but then, like, like we also discussed, man, we had a great discussion. Like, no, this one's pretty good, though. I don't want to hear that discussion. Yeah, this one's pretty good. Don't worry. <laughs> it, it's, okay, good. Yeah, I'm a little nervous about that. Getting to see the people. And, uh, <laughs> and the thing is that, um, that the tone there's just nowhere to go with it. Right. And I think that that, that Zack Snyder really romanticizes the Frank Miller and the Alan Moore stuff. And who doesn't? That stuff is brilliant. It's great. But at the same time, those were all one-shots, like Watchmen, you know, Dark Knight Returns. Yep. Those things were one-shots. They had, they had complete beginning, middle, and end. And they were Elseworlds tales. They weren't part of the DC universe. That's right. I think they understood like, you can't bring this stuff in the DC universe. The only good thing that came out of, like, like any of that stuff, I thought, was the fact that, and people are going to hate me for saying this, is the killing joke, that they brought Barbara Gordon over into the, into the like, the real universe, because the killing joke was still an Elseworlds tale yes. when it came out. That's right. And they, they brought her over, and they gave that same origin, which I thought was fine. I thought it worked. And... Like I said, this is where I might upset people. I kind of like the aesthetic of, of Bad Girl, but it was also a contrivance of that 60s TV series. It wasn't really, it didn't come out of the comic books. And I just think that Barbara Gordon is better as Oracle, and she serves story, and she serves the Batman family better as Oracle than she does as Bad Girl. And I think she's more of a kick-ass character. I think she's more intense. And I think she's more role model-oriented. Because, and, and then the Batgirl stuff becomes, like, cooler because that's her backstory. That she was this, you know, this kick-ass superhero. But not anymore. But yet, she still serves the greater good. You know what I mean? I do. Her life is still, yeah, about, like, you know, serving her fellow man and, and trying to rise above. Even the fact that she could never go out and kick butt on the, the rooftops of Gotham anymore. Well, you know? or, or Gail, I, Gail Simone gave her that great story in Birds of Prey where the female spy smasher was just being a complete pill the entire time. And finally, Barbara's like, all right, let's go. And Barbara's in the chair. And Barbara is very capable of handling herself even without her legs in terms of fighting spy smasher, which was really this amazing scene. Or there's that beautiful romantic scene of her and Dick Grayson on the trapeze, you know, a after she's Oracle and, and still they're flying around and stuff. No, I agree with you. And in fact, I agreed with uh, the physically challenged people that really d did stand up to DC when they said Barbara's going to be Batgirl again and said, you're taking away our hero. You're taking away our hero. Yeah. And, and I agreed. And it was, and I'm sure that the powers that be legitimately agonized over that very issue. But I agree with you. 
I, I'm, I'm, it's fine that Batgirl is back and that she is Barbara Gordon again. And that's a very legitimate argument to say, if you ask a person on the street who is Batgirl because of the show, they're going to say Barbara Gordon. All that said, you're right. I think Oracle was the stronger character, served a much more interesting purpose, and again, was a very important, not only female role model, but a role model to the physically challenged. And I think, again, a very positive character in the same way that Daredevil is to the blind. So it's it's yeah, but also she served story. Yep. She served Batman better. She served all of the bad yep. characters because she didn't just talk to Batman. She talked to Robin. She talked right. to Nightwing. She talked to all those characters and she advised them and she was like the eye in the sky. Absolutely. Kind of thing, and she had their back. Yep. And I thought like that's that's a killer ally to have. Agreed. Like if you're out there on the street and stuff, I mean I think it just serves it serves story, and like you said, it, it's a role model on top of that. So that's like the icing on the cake. Agreed. You yeah, know, yeah. As far as that character. Nope. Yeah. All true. All true. Well, dude, I don't want to keep you. On... Do you want or do you? Go, I was going to say, if you want to keep going, we can. It's up to you. Oh, I, I'm I'm good. Yeah, I was just going to say, that, <laughs> um, as, as far as like back to like um, just the Zack Snyder, I just think that you can't base an ongoing universe on Frank Miller and Alan Moore one-shot Elseworlds Tales. I just don't think that you can construct an ongoing universe with with that tone well, in there. It's certainly, um, not the, certainly not the DC universe. I mean, I, I think the... You know, I liked the second Sin City movie. I liked it fine. Uh, the, the only thing I didn't care for was the second Nancy story, Jessica Alba's uh, story arc. But everything else I thought... Well, and also I would say, unfortunately... Replacing uh, Clive Owen with Josh Josh Brolin uh, didn't quite work, and I mean it, it's a shame they felt the need to show him uh, get the plastic surgery to to make him kind of look like Clive Owen, but it, it's still Josh Brolin. Uh, and it, I mean because yeah. because and I forget the character's name right now in Sin City that does change his face, so it's okay to have a different actor play him. But all that said. I, I liked the the other stories. And as far as Sin City remaining in that noir, dreary environment, just like it works in Watchmen. But again, I, I think the DC Universe, there you need you need to be able to adapt, like you said, in the again, the way that the cinematic Marvel universe has been able to tell all these different stories in varied genres because they don't forget about humor and, you know, again, uh understanding why you know, you need contrast, and and not just the actual literal color contrast, but you do. You need you need you need you need humor with the drama. You need uh, action and fun with the serious moments uh, for them all to work effectively. Because you need those releases, and you need that just that human condition of going up and down as we do, and we react to what we see and feel. So it's yeah. again, again, I, I you know uh, wish it was under different circumstances, but not sad to see. Zack Snyder's influence walk out. And it's funny because today I thought I saw Liefeld said if it wasn't himself, friends of his who saw a rough cut of Justice League and had positive things to say about it. Now, I don't know. I don't know where the sources I are hope, from. I hope that we Justice all do. League were amazing. Like when I was a kid, I was like, oh my gosh, the Justice League you know, are amazing. And I have all these like preconceived ideas of how like the Justice League should be and how they could do it in a film and all those other things. Um, so I'm really hoping that, you know, like Wonder Woman kind of maybe opened 
like the Warner Brothers eyes and uh, and the DC execs and whoever makes these decisions and just brings like real hope, not just like oh it's an S on their chest and they say it <laughs> it stands for hope, but like real real hope and real actual uh, you know where the characters seem to care about what's going on and, and yeah. are helpful and, and heroic. Agreed. You know, um, yeah, rise above. Well, we'll you know, see. become heroic. Yeah, we'll yeah. see, man. We'll see. What? Let's get back to, I'm, like, I'm well, let's get, I'm curious, so you're currently working on Superwoman. Are there DC characters that you're willing to say that you haven't had a chance to work on that you'd like to? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, there is a character... That was my gateway, and probably most people's as well. It was uh, Batman. Sure. And I grew up in the Adam West, you know, Batman oh, yeah. series. I was, I was so young, I didn't know that stuff was campy or, or played for laughs. I thought it was all real. And of course. And I, I loved it. And then, you know, I was already kind of getting the comics at the time. And so, like, Batman was my guy, so... One of the first things I, you know, I wanted to do is I, I, I wanted to do Batman. So I remember going into Denny O'Neill's office in the day, and you know, how about some? Here's my Batman samples. Like, you're not quite Batman standards right now, you know, because you know all the best guys do Batman. And so I was like, okay. So, you know, I kept I kept working at it, and and I wanted to pencil it. This was you know before like I became like a full time inker. Got it. So I was kind of you know inking and penciling, just trying to find myself. And so I do these samples all the time, and I'd ask other inkers to ink my Batman drawings. Was convinced, well, maybe if I could get the Batman inker to you know, ink my stuff, then you know it would it would polish it up enough. And so I would do all those all those things, and time and time again, no, no, wow. no. So I I have kind of dabbled. I I did a, a small run with uh, Aaron Lepresti on Detective Comics, and um, I did uh, that. Uh, Batman, Geyer or Gyre? I'm not sure how you say. Widening Geyer, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Kevin Geyer Smith, and, um, the Kevin Smith story. Yeah, so I did I did that series with yeah Kevin Smith and Walter Flanagan, and then um, I did a pretty good run on it was the um, it was the Batman video game. Um, Arkham City. Yeah, and that we did that, and. Um, and that was great. So I kind and then you know he would guest star in books that I've worked on and things like that. So he's he's been one of those characters that I would like to have some kind of definitive run on, you know, like a year or or more, like twelve issues, fifteen issues, you know, something like that. That I can go, ah, oh, here's a body of work, you know, on my favorite character. Sure. And it still it still really hasn't happened. I've I've done almost every other icon, but I haven't done that. And the only other character that I really want to do, and it's over at Marvel, is the Hulk. I would love to do... Fun. If the writer, you know, and the the penciler were just, like, really bombastic. Because I want to do that Hulk. I want to do the really, you know, Hulk smash character. Sure. And just be really bold with the line weights and all that stuff. And just really, just be very expressive. Because I think it's a character that, as an, like, an eager, like me, I think I could really just open up on. It would be... Wow. Interesting. Are there any C or D level heroes or villains that you've got a certain you know uh, love for and stuff? A brother, Cap Power the Geek, or somebody like that, or a multi you know uh, 
Ultra, the multi-alien, or some, you know what I mean? You know, somebody like that? Oh my gosh, I've never even thought about this before. There's got to be one. I just I can't think of it right okay, now. Okay, no problem. So, it, <laughs> you know what? You know what things work for me. I'll be sleeping. It'll be three o'clock in the morning. I go, oh, here's a character. Well, if you want to email me later, there you go. You know. <laughs> yeah. Very funny. All right, man. Brother Power of the Geek is pretty cool. Well, um, I also uh, was it Blue Devil? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I remember Blue Devil. Devil. I, I Devil Dinosaur. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mentioned Brother Power the Geek. I had no idea because I didn't even see the panels live. But at this year's C2E2, uh, Frank Miller said that he has pitched Dan DiDio very hard about doing Bro- Brother the Power the Geek. And Dan's like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> so, and he, he mentioned it on his panel with Dan, and he also mentioned it on a, a panel with Azarello. And I, that kills me. And it's like, why not, man? You know, I got Andy. Yeah. You know, Andy Diggle always loved uh, Adam Strange, and he did an amazing modern Adam Strange story. And, uh, you know, God, I'll tell you, I really loved uh, Death of Hawkman that Mark Andreco and I forget who was doing. Did you, did you do the art on that? I know you said you did Hawkman in the past. I didn't no, know if you were referring no, to that I one. I that. Oh, it's, it's a brand new story. It's a, it, it was a Rebirth uh, miniseries. And oh, okay. and it was a great uh, Adam Strange Hawkman, uh, Thanagar Ron uh, War kind of book, and it was terrific. And it kind of led into. I the... always like those two characters together, though. They always oh yeah, seem to really complement each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. No, those were those were great crossovers back in the '60s. No question. So there you go, man. All right, well, let's wrap up. I think uh, I think we did pretty good. I thought I think we uh, I think we exceeded what we did last night, frankly. Because we even managed to touch yeah. back on some of those things we talked about last night and uh, went into different areas as well. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, I, I really, really appreciate you giving me this opportunity to not just talk about comics with uh, the comics guru, uh, which is you, please, um, but also kind of plug, uh, you know, my Kickstarter. Which Absolutely, I am very proud of, and I hope. I hope people are willing to give an anchor a chance, like uh, is this threaded stuff, and to show that uh, there's more sides to me, more facets to me than just you know what you might see me do monthly. Absolutely, man. You're you're yeah. in you're inside. Uh, you're at uh, five hundred and eighty-five dollars from your stretch goal of nineteen thousand, which would allow. It just went up. It went up a couple times since we've been talking. I just I just tuned in. Yeah. So, awesome. yeah, man. So, so no, we're we're really close at getting uh, the book from fifty-two pages to sixty pages. I hope that happens in as we're speaking. The eight days left. Uh, I imagine I'm going to release this in you know very soon. So it will be like if not seven days within six days of it ending. So plenty of time. Look up uh, the Kickstarter campaign for uh, Oodles of Doodles and other stuff too. The art of Art Theber Theber and uh, uh, T Bear. Excuse me, man. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah. it, as, uh, it's always a pleasure, and I, I, I appreciate your time today. And when you've got something new to talk about, let me know, and we'll do this again. I will. It was a pleasure, John. And uh, for the record, T-B-E-A-R is the best way to think about yeah, it. Yeah, T-Bear. I think Wizard's the one that gave me that. Like, they did an article years ago, and it's like T-Bear, and then they you know, put in parentheses, you know, the T-B-E-A-R. And I always thought, wow. Why did I think of that? There you go. 
So, Art Tebert, yeah. thank you, thank you, man, and uh, a pleasure as always. All right, brother. You have a good night. There you go, Art Tebert. See, we went to a lot of interesting places and uh, deep thinker, and uh, glad to share his thoughts uh, with you on uh, Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope uh, the next time Art's at a convention, uh, you go up and uh, let him know that you heard the talk on Word Balloon, and uh, you know you can. Uh, Start a conversation with some of the things we talked about. I hope you do that. And I hope you tune in to the next episode of Word Balloon. As I said, if you didn't notice in your feed, I had a great conversation with Rod Rice that I've also put out today. And uh, I've got a, a couple more. I'm going to do another double feature. With, there'll be separate episodes, but you know, uh, two, two episodes released on the same day. And I hope you uh, listen to all of it because it's going to be a very busy September. Uh, Salt Lake City Comic Con coming up in just two weeks. Very excited about uh, doing a few panels there. Uh, great organizers, a great show if you're in that tri-state area and uh, are thinking about going to an amazing convention. Dick Van Dyke is going to be at this convention. I hope he uh, is able to keep that schedule. You know, you, you, you worry when it's a, a guest in their 90s. But, man, uh, much like Stan Lee and Carl Reiner and some of the other, Norman Lear, some of the amazing creatives that are still very vibrant and active in their 90s. Dick Van Dyke, no exception. What an incredible career. And uh, he's just one of the many wonderful guests that are going to be on the media side of Salt Lake City Comic Con. But I'm looking forward to panels with Mike Zeck and John Beatty, the wonderful art team that uh, did Circle of Blood, the Punisher's talk that I, uh, Punisher series that I mentioned earlier in my in-stock trades commercial. Um, and also Joe Rubenstein from Marvel. That's just the tip of the the iceberg. Joe Rubenstein, of course, the wonderful inker. My God, some of the things that he's worked on. I mean, you know, the body of work, working with guys like George Perez, doing all the, you know, 99% of the art for the official Marvel Universe handbook. Uh, Ohatmu, as it's known to uh, the Marvel heads and everything. Uh, I'm really excited about this conversation with Joe and the conversation with Mike and John. Uh, just a couple of the many panels I'll be doing at uh, Salt Lake City Con. I'll have a table there as well. Please come by and say hello. I'll be selling a No Plan B, the Mike Oming art book, and a couple other little surprises as well. But even just, you know, if you want to say hi and you listen to the podcast, if you're going to Salt Lake City Comic Con, I hope you'll stop by. I'll give you my table number and more of my panels as all that information is presented to me. But I uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode of Word Balloon. It was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. And I am literally, as we're speaking, searching for Art T-Bear uh, works from In Stock Trades. Uh, they've got things like The Witching Hour, which was written by Jeff Loeb. Uh, ben Stevens and Art T-Bear and, and Chris Pachalo, uh did the art. But uh, this is, uh, man, this is a great early Jeff Loeb DC stuff uh, in the horror vein. Uh, this book is 42% off. It's just $11.57. You can also get... Uh, Art's work on the Justice Society with uh, Dave, Dave, Dale Eaglesham and Art T-Bear and uh, Jeff Johns. Uh, this is Volume 1, The Next Age. It's 42% off, $11.59. Uh, Art was also, uh, he did the cover for Batman Wildcat, which features Chuck Dixon and Sergio Carrillo and Danny Mickey. Uh, this book was, uh, man, a great collection of uh some fun, uh, you know, encounters with Batman and Wildcat. Chuck, obviously a big fan of the Brave and Bold days. And uh, he brought him back in this uh, very fun uh, uh, a story uh, to shut down a secret uh, superhuman fighting ring that is killing its combatants. 
So uh, read Batman and Wildcat, 42% off, $14.49. Just some of the great books that are available at InStockTrades.com with our T-Bird's name on them. Uh, There's a lot more as well. Go check it out for yourself. Great books at great prices, InStockTrades.com. Thanks for listening to today's Word Balloon. More coming in the days ahead. It's going to be a very heavy September because I've I've got that embarrassment of riches where a bunch of creators all said yes at the same time. And some even came out of the woodwork and said, hey, I know you didn't contact me, but let's do a new word balloon. So uh, really great stuff. Great creators coming in the days ahead. And uh, very excited. Some first timers that I'm so pleased are finally on word balloon. And I can't wait to share these conversations with you. So there's going to be a lot of activity coming early in September and throughout the month. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you uh, come back for more right here at wordballoon.com. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017. There you go, R.T. Barry. See, we went to a lot of interesting places and uh, deep thinker and uh, glad to share his thoughts uh, with you on uh, Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope uh, the next time Art's at a convention, uh, you go up and uh, let him know that you heard the talk on Word Balloon, and uh, you know you can uh, start a conversation with some of the things we talked about. I hope you do that, and I hope you tune in to the next episode of Word Balloon. As I said, if you didn't notice in your feed, I had a great conversation with Rod Rice that I've also put out today, and uh, I've got a, a couple more. I'm going to do another double feature. With, there'll be separate episodes, but you know, uh, two, two episodes released on the same day. And I hope you uh, listen to all of it because it's going to be a very busy September. Uh, Salt Lake City Comic Con coming up in just two weeks. Very excited about uh, doing a few panels there. Uh, great organizers, a great show if you're in that tri-state area and uh, are thinking about going to an amazing convention. Dick Van Dyke is going to be at this convention. I hope he uh, is able to keep that schedule. You know, you you, you worry when it's a, a guest in their 90s. But, man, uh, much like Stan Lee and Carl Reiner and some of the other, Norman Lear, some of the amazing creatives that are still very vibrant and active in their 90s, Dick Van Dyke, no exception, what an incredible career. And uh, he's just one of the many wonderful guests that are going to be on the media side of Salt Lake City Comic Con. But I'm looking forward to panels with Mike Zeck and John Beatty, the wonderful art team that uh, did Circle of Blood, the Punisher's talk that I, uh, Punisher series that I mentioned earlier in my In Stock Trades commercial, um, and also Joe Rubenstein from Marvel. That's just the tip of the the iceberg. Joe Rubenstein, of course, the wonderful inker. My God, some of the things that he's worked on. I mean, you know, the body of work, working with guys like George Perez, doing all the, you know, 99% of the art for the official Marvel Universe handbook. Uh, Ohatmu, as it's known to uh, the Marvel heads and everything. Uh, I'm really excited about this conversation with Joe and the conversation with Mike and John. Uh, Just a couple of the many panels I'll be doing at uh, Salt Lake City Con. I'll have a table there as well. Please come by and say hello. I'll be selling a No Plan B, the Mike Oming art book, and a couple other little surprises as well. But even just, you know, if you want to say hi and you listen to the podcast, if you're going to Salt Lake City Comic Con, I hope you'll stop by. I'll give you my table number and more of my panels as all that information is presented to me. But I uh, hope you enjoyed today's episode of Word Balloon. It was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. And I am literally, as we're speaking, searching for Art T Bear uh, works from InStock Trades. Uh, They've got things like The Witching Hour, which was written by Jeff Loeb. Uh, Ben Stevens and Art T-Bear and and Chris Pachalo did the art. But uh, this is, uh, man, this is uh, great early Jeff Loeb DC stuff. 
uh, in the horror vein. Uh, this book is 42% off. It's just $11.57. You can also get uh, Art's work on the Justice Society with uh, Dave, Dave, Dale Eaglesham and Art T-Bear and uh, Jeff Johns. Uh, this is Volume 1, The Next Age. It's 42% off, $11.59. Uh, Art was also, uh, he did the cover for Batman Wildcat, which features Chuck Dixon and Sergio Carrillo and Danny Mickey. Uh, this book was, uh, man, a great collection of uh, some fun, uh, you know, encounters with Batman and Wildcat. Chuck, obviously a big fan of the Brave and Bold days, and uh, he brought them back in this uh, very fun uh uh, a story uh, to shut down a secret uh, superhuman fighting ring that is killing its combatants. So uh, read Batman and Wildcat, 42% off, $14.49. Just some of the great books that are available at InStockTrades.com with our T-Bear's name on them. Uh, there's a lot more as well. Go check it out for yourself. Great books at great prices. InStockTrades.com. Thanks for listening to today's Word Balloon. More coming in the days ahead. It's going to be a very heavy September because I've been I've got that embarrassment of riches where a bunch of creators all said yes at the same time. And some even came out of the woodwork and said, hey, I know you didn't contact me, but let's do a new word balloon. So uh, really great stuff. Great creators coming in the days ahead and uh, very excited. Some first timers that I'm so pleased are finally on word balloon. And I can't wait to share these conversations with you. So there's going to be a lot of activity coming early in September and throughout the month. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you uh, come back for more right here at WordBalloon.com. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.